Well, good morning, Bridgeway. It's nice to be here with you this morning and really nice to see all your smiling faces. So my name's Paul Tomey. As Heather said, I'm over the care and compassion area. Uh, and I'm the new guy on staff, so I've been here maybe six weeks or so, roughly around there. So a couple of quick observations for you. One of the things that um, I'm floored by is that you, uh, you have a marvelous staff here, not including me, a marvelous staff. It's an amazing group of people, and you are so lucky as a church to, to have that caliber of leadership in your midst. The second thing is every, all of you have made it so um, comfortable for me to make a transition to a new ministry. I want to thank you for that. Everyone has been so welcoming, uh, and it's just been a thrill for me. I, I love being here uh, with you this morning. The third thing that I've noticed, especially just standing backstage there, is that this crowd is the rowdiest one of all the weekend <laughs> services. So, yes, I, yeah, there you go. So uh, feel free during the service here. Um, I'm thrilled to be able to open the scriptures to you today. I'm going to start this way. A few years ago, some researchers at University of California, Berkeley, decided to try an experiment. So they took a rat that was in a cage, and they took the rat into the middle of the memorial stadium there where they play football. They put it down at midfield, and they opened the cage door, and then they just stood back to see what would happen. Well, the first day, the rat kind of stayed in the cage for about 30 minutes, and then kind of peeked his head outside a little bit, took a look around, popped back in for the rest of the day. Second day, though, the rat kind of took a few steps out, kind of scurried around just a little bit outside the cage, immediately came back in, stayed in the cage. Third day out, the rat came out of the cage, took off up the stadium stairs, went around the edge of the stadium, came back down the stadium stairs this way, back to the midfield line, went up again, did the same kind of route. It was an amazing thing, all unprompted by the researchers. They weren't using food or anything to try to get this to happen. And one of the things that highlights is just simply this, that all creatures, every single creature on this planet, including you and me, has a natural drive for growth and for the mastery of their environment. It's a very innate drive that God has put within us. But it demands something, and by necessity it demands this, you have to be willing to risk. And that's kind of a scary thing sometimes. It's a hard thing to risk until you really are sure that you're gonna be okay. Psychologists tell us this about human beings, and it's very, very true. That it's very, very important for infants and toddlers, especially in the care of a primary caregiver, that they learn how to be alone in the presence of that primary caregiver, especially the mother. It seems that when a child understands and has a settled conviction and becomes convinced that that parent is attentive, that that parent is um, responsive, that that parent is watchful and alert, when the parent is faithful in their task, the child just starts to relax, becomes much less anxious, becomes much less clingy, and becomes free to explore his or her environment around them, their world. This is something that's beautiful to see. And we we call this kind of settled kind of conviction by a single word, confidence. Confidence. And it is vital to human flourishing. You cannot grow and develop and thrive unless you are willing to take those risks. But it takes confidence to do that. And we all want that. I was doing some research on the uh, connection between confidence or self-efficacy and life success. And there's been a lot of different studies. So here's, I'm just going to share briefly with you what this is. Over the last 50 years, every single study in this area that has researched the correlation between self-efficacy or what we call confidence 
And life success draws a very tight correlation between the two. So here's some of the things that they found. Confident people are more likely to try new things. They are more resilient. They rebound better after failure. They are more persistent in the face of potential obstacles. They approach difficult tasks as challenges to be solved, not threats to be avoided. They experience reduced levels of stress. They evidence lower rates of depression. They exhibit higher levels of aspiration or ambition. They demonstrate stronger commitments, particularly relational commitments, because they are not focused on themselves. They breed higher levels of empathy and have the capacity for greater empathy for other people simply because they're not focused just on themselves. They engage in more direct eye contact. Their posture is actually better. They hold their heads up. They stand straighter. And it all shows up in their body language. They have what we call in the athletic world swagger, if you're familiar with the term. When you step on out onto that court, you step out onto that field, you have this innate sense that you are going to be successful, you're going to perform well, and your team is going to win. It just shows up in who you are. In short, they are not George McFly. <laughs> Confident people. So you and I, we all crave this, by the way. We crave being these kind of people. We want to be the people who will try new things. We want to be the people who will take some risks. We want to be able to ditch that bad relationship that's sucking the life out of us and have the confidence to enter maybe into a new one. We want to be able to dream the bigger dreams. We want to be able to become generous maybe, even though we're living on a shoestring budget and take that risk at times. We want to challenge ourselves. We want to be confident people. We all want it at that level. Here's the hard part. This is a very difficult area for most of us. And the area in which it is most important for us to be confident, that is, in our relationship with the living God, that's exactly the place where most of us struggle the most. I have no doubt that some of you who entered into this place today and in an audience this size and a place this big who came in here who have lost confidence in God. You're not sure whether God loves you. You're not sure how interested God is in your life or in the details of your life. You're not sure if somehow you have lost God's favor. You maybe feel a little bit iffy. You maybe be walking on eggshells. You may feel like, ah, if I fail one more time, man, I'm sure that's it. God will quit on me. He'll ignore me. Whatever it might be. But this is the place where, where confidence makes a world of difference in your relationship with God. And we're going to talk about the subject of confidence today in the passage that we're going to look at. And I think this. If you let this truth really get a hold of you, it will raise your level of confidence, if not one notch, maybe several. And I believe the Bible and the scriptures are that powerful to do that for us this morning. So as you know, we're in the year of connecting. Uh, we are talking about how uh, we can connect with each other and with God. Uh, the whole idea behind this, we've been using the book of Ephesians to explore this whole area. What's it mean to connect vertically with God and then to connect with each other in this great grand project that God is involved in called, and what Jesus would call, the church? The book of Ephesians actually is Paul's great manifesto on the church of Jesus, the assembly of people that Jesus would call together to be his followers and that would be a part of changing the world. So as we're looking at this, what I want to do is begin this morning just by kind of reviewing a little bit. I want to rewind the tape from the last few weeks. And I want to catch us up a little bit and bring some of you up to speed. Maybe you haven't been around here for the last few weeks and you haven't heard some of this. But just kind of bring you up to speed on this because I believe it's important for us to do that kind of thing. 
I, I think sometimes our culture wants to break things down into such smaller parts, like we're constantly bre- breaking stuff down to ever smaller components, that oftentimes I just wonder if we don't go overboard, where it gets hard to see the forest because of the trees. We do this in a lot of different ways, by the way. If you've maybe sat in a Sunday school class or something where the first week you were in class, they, they talked about Daniel in the lion's den. And then the next week they talked about creation, the creation of the universe. And then the next week they talked about Joshua taking the land of Palestine away from the Canaanites. And then the next week they talked about Jesus changing water into wine. And you've heard all these stories, but they are all these dis- disconnected little bites. So it's important, I think, this morning as we get going that we kind of do take that time to review and maybe get you up to speed with some of this. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And there are some Bibles in front of you. The, the page number is 976, so there's some Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. You can grab those. And, uh, and we're going to try to catch a sense of the flow. All biblical writers, when they were writing, wrote with flow. They didn't just write with tiny bites of information that were disconnected. They had a flow to them. So Paul will do the very same thing here in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. Paul writes and he says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's his theme for the whole thing, all these spiritual blessings. And in the next few verses, Paul spells out some of these primary spiritual blessings. I like to think of them as spiritual advantages or enrichments, ways that God has enriched us with who he is and our connected relationship with him. So in verse 4, he says that God has chosen us for connection. We've been chosen for a connection with the living God of the universe. Then in verses 5 through 6, he talks about the fact that what God has predestined for us is a highly personal connection with him. So not just any connection, not a surface connection, but a highly personal connection. Now, I think most of us do not see God as highly personal. Because we cannot see him, because we cannot hear him, oftentimes I think our perception is, well, God's not quite as personal as uh, this person standing in front of me that I'm relating to. But I want to see if you might think a little bit differently about how personal God is. So if I had on the stage in front of me here several items, let's say I started over here with a rock, all right? The rock has no personality to it, correct? I mean, I know some of you have pet rocks, but no personality, all right, at all. Then if we were to move over here to a plant, which is a living organism, well, it might exhibit little more life than a rock would, all right? It grows, it blooms, those kind of things. So let's move to the next thing, a cat. No, no personality there. Next thing... Frog, a frog. You got, might have a pet frog or a lizard or something. A little more personality, but not a whole lot of personality. Then let's move to the next thing, golden retriever. A lot more, uh, yeah, see, a lot more personality. Ah, you see the light in, in that dog's eyes, it wags its tail. There's much more personality, very personal. And move to the next thing, maybe a chimpanzee, even more personal. The next thing, a human being, very personal. And just understand this, God on the continuum is way out there. Personal in ways that you might not ever imagine, but that you might sense or feel in your spirit. And that's what Paul's trying to get at here. We've been chosen, predestined into this very personal relationship with God. And then in verses 7 through the first part of verse 8, we have redemption, forgiveness of our sins, a clean slate with God. And then in verses, uh, the second half of verse 8 through 10, 
God has then revealed, has another spiritual blessing. He's revealed very inside information to those of us who belong to him about what he is doing in the world. In wisdom and insight, it says he made known to us the mystery of what he's doing in human history. And then he begins to define it a little bit more. And I'm going to camp on this for just a moment because I think it's that important. Because I think this is Paul's great manifesto about the church. And this is one of the key thoughts that he has about the church of Jesus. He says that God is doing something in our world. He's involved in a grand human project called the church. He is implementing a new ordering to the existing world structure. Our current world system has been disordered by sin. Our economies, our politics, our governments, our institutions, all of them are shot through with the disorder that sin has brought to our universe. So what God is doing, he is implementing a new ordering of the world system. He calls here and uses the word administration. It's literally the word which means house rules. So in your house, you probably have certain rules, certain systems that you have set up for the way you run your household. Like when people come through the door, they have to always take their shoes off. And you might eat dinner a certain way every night, and you might have a certain time every night. And you have a system of the way things are done in your household. In my household, they might be different. I have a different system. We wear our shoes all the time. We might eat at irregular times, only when we feel like it. We might, who knows? They're just different. So in this corrupted world system that has been corrupted by sin, God is implementing a new administration for the fullness of times. And then he defines it even more tightly. The uniting of all things in Christ. Bringing together everything, all things, things in the heaven, things upon the earth, in him. God is implementing a reordering of the current world system. And sin has disordered us. But in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, God invades the universe and he begins a new world order. It's fascinating. Jesus would talk about this. He would call it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He would tell his disciples, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And if you've ever sat and imagined, what would that kingdom be like? I mean, what, what's this future world that we're hoping will take place someday? I, I sat down a few months ago. I was thinking about this, and I wrote down some thoughts for you. It's this. The, the world that Jesus pictured was a world where there was no crime, no evil, no jails or prisons or lethal injection rooms. Hospitals, coffins, and cemetery plots would be unnecessary. In this kingdom, there would be no birth defects, no miscarriages, no welfare offices, no WMDs, no pills, no drugs. The C word would no longer, longer designate that dreaded disease of cancer or the coronavirus, but instead would stand for connection. The kingdom of God would be a world where people got along so well there would be no need for lawyers, judges, police officers, or NATO forces. Dirty diapers, taxes, Laker fans, and cats would be things of the past. That's what I'm saying. I know, some of you love your cats, that's okay. <clears throat> we give you absolution. No one would put locks on their doors. Social and ec economic barriers would cease to exist. Racism, hate, war, abuse, sexual exploitation, and homelessness would soon be eradicated. In the world that Jesus pictured, people would truly care for each other. They would voluntarily share their wealth with those who had little. They would purchase donuts so that kids could go to camp. People would dwell together in harmony and love. Diversity would be welcomed and embraced. 
In this kingdom, people would connect with God in a relationship so deep, so profound, and so fulfilling that they would sit in awestruck wonder at the magnificence of God. They would feel so loved by him that they would feel like their hearts were exploding inside of their chests. No one would ever be plagued again by humiliation, guilt, shame, doubt, confusion, uncertainty, or embarrassment. There would no longer be any holes in our souls. And Jesus, when he came, ushered in a new system, a new way of doing life. It's only in its inception form. It's not fully formed yet, but it's begun in seed form. And as it grows, it will begin to take over the current world system. But make no mistake about it. The most radical thing about this is that Jesus saw all of this coming together in him. All of it coming together in him. Ah, What a vision. What a vision of what God is doing in the world today. Then there's another spiritual advantage that he points out in verses 11 through 12. It's the idea that we have been given a glorious inheritance, a glorious future with God. We've been made heirs of a future beyond our wildest imaginations. So can I point out a couple of quick observations about this entire section up to this point? Verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek is one long, single, compound sentence. There are no periods or breaks. And here's the idea that Paul gets so wrapped up in this. He starts with this one point, and then he sees another point, and then he gets connected to another point, and now he gets on a roll, and he's beginning to think about this, and he's connecting it to that, and he's going here, and he's going, and finally, it's almost like he's so pumped about this whole thing, he just can't stop. We ought to be too. But the second thing that I want you to see is that he says, all of this is taking place in Christ. Did you notice the repetition of that phrase throughout this section? In him, in the beloved, in Jesus, in Christ. That God has initiated all of this action, but it has been accomplished by the person and the work of Jesus. So now we come to verse 13, and this is our passage for this morning. And he spells out the final spiritual advantage. So if you have your notes and you like to fill in blanks, they're wrong. We didn't get this phrase actually in the notes for today, but it is going to be up on the screen here, all right? And here it is. And the two, I'll point out the two words I want you to remember. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God has established an unbreakable connection with those who belong to him. The key words are unbreakable connection. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God has established an unbreakable connection with those who belong to him. Let's read verses 13 and 14. In him, Paul writes, that is in Jesus, referred back to in verse 12, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you yourselves were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So if I could isolate the driving idea, here it is, the driving idea of the passage. You had been sealed. You yourselves had been sealed. That's the prominent idea in this passage. And it's fascinating when you begin to look at the the idea of what sealing means here. What does it mean that we have been sealed into this connection? Well, the word has multiple meanings, multiple shades of meanings, I should say, that are all involved together. The first one is, it means to authenticate something. If you want to know that something is genuine and it's the real deal, then maybe the good housekeeping seal of approval will tell you that, right? It authenticates that that's the genuine thing. It can also mean to protect something. 
Like if you have leftovers, you will use your Tupperware or whatever containers you use to seal that food in so that it cannot be corrupted by decay or bacteria or other things that are in your refrigerator like it's in mine. Or it can have another kind of shade of meaning here. It can mean to secure something so that it avoids being tampered with. So if you remember, when Jesus was buried at the tomb of Jesus, when the Roman guard was posted, they sealed the tomb with the official seal of Rome. The idea behind this is nobody can go in there. Nobody can tamper with this. We do the same thing with childproof caps. They're tamper-proof. I had experience with tampering this past year. Over this past Christmas, we bought uh, my, my granddaughter, Cassidy, we bought her the singing Olaf. Now, you remember Olaf from the movie Frozen, right, the little snowman. We bought her the singing Olaf, got the package home, and it was my job to take Olaf out of the package. It took me a frickin' half hour to do this. Have you ever tried, you ever know those packages? They defy scissors, they defy uh, knives, they defy everything to try to get them out. I had to use wire cutters. I had, by the time I got Olaf out, I'm going to tell you this, I was not ready to build a snowman. <laughs> it's not. Right. So, you know, my wife just said, let it go. <laughs> so here's the root idea, though. And this is all associated together in this word. The root idea is simply this, that of ownership conveying identity. Ownership conveying identity. Do you remember in the classic children's Disney film, The Toy Story, Woody, on the very bottom of his shoe, what does he always see on the bottom of his shoe? Andy's name. Andy has forever marked Woody as his toy. And Woody will always think of himself as Andy being his kid. Ownership, identity, being wanted. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, here's the implication of this for everybody here this morning. I don't care where you're sitting. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been or where you're going to right now. You have incalculable worth and value to God. You matter to him. You matter to him. You are unique. You have something to contribute. You're valuable and you're wanted. Maybe more than anything else, you're wanted. In the book, The Whisper Test, a young girl talks about her experiences growing up with a cleft palate. She was born with a cleft palate. And so she said all of her growing up years in school, she was always different from all the other kids, and they were quick to remind her that she was different. She was the girl with the twisted lip and the crooked nose and the garbled speech. And they would always ask her, and whenever someone would ask her, they'd say, well, how did you, how did you, what, what happened to your lip? She would always tell them, well, I, I had an accident when I was little and I fell down. She said, it always seemed more acceptable to have this be an accident that I was this way than the fact that I was born this way and very different from everybody else. So I became convinced that nobody outside of my immediate family could ever love me. Well, in the old days, if you, some of you who are old school will know this, that, that when you had your hearing tested in school, they would do something called the whisper test. The teacher would stand on the other side of a door and the student would stand on the other side of that door. You would put your ear up to the door, cover your other ear with a hand, and the teacher would whisper a phrase. Usually it was some innocuous phrase like, you know, I'm having roast beef for lunch today, or I'm wearing a pretty dress today, something like that. And the student would have to repeat back what they'd heard whispered. She said, so it became her turn. She went to the door and she put her ear up to the door. 
she covered her other ear with her hand, and she said, and I heard the words that I believe God put into her mouth that changed my life. She said, on the other side of the doorway, she said, I heard these words, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. There's nothing like being wanted in this world. We all desire it. And the very fact that God has sealed us into this connected relationship with Jesus is the way God communicates, you belong to me. I want you. Never lose sight of that fact. But God, excuse me, but Paul also identifies the active agent of this sealing who is none other than the Holy Spirit of God. Did you notice that in here? That you were sealed or had been sealed or were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All right? This is the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each one co-equal in power, glory, and in essence. I like the way Dallas Willard talks about the triune God this way. He says, the Trinity is a self-sufficing community of unspeakably magnificent personal beings, of boundless love, knowledge, and power. And this Holy Spirit is one of these magnificent beings. Francis Chan calls the Holy Spirit the forgotten God because we put so much attention and focus into God the Father and God the Son, but the Holy Spirit seems to fly under the radar, and he just, he's not noticed as much. Frederick Buhner, the, the theologian, says that the Holy Spirit is the shy person of the Trinity. Not timid, you know, like, mm, but deflecting attention away from himself constantly, always deflecting attention towards Jesus, always deflecting attention toward the Father, never wanting the attention of the spotlight to be on himself. Kyle Eidelman, who's a pastor, I think, I believe it's in Tennessee, calls the Holy Spirit the Cousin Eddie of the Trinity. If you've seen the, the movie, you know, Christmas Vacation, you'll understand. And that's because nobody knows what to do with him. He just flies way outside the boundaries of what's normal in life, right? But it's this Holy Spirit who is the agent of sealing us into that relationship with Christ. Yeah. And he's promised that way. Now, in the Old Testament, one of the things you have to understand about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, existed, was present, and was working and active, but always in a, as an external force upon the lives of God's people. So he would come upon people to accomplish a specific task or to accomplish some heroic deed that maybe God was calling them to, but then he would withdraw and go away. But even as far back as the Old Testament prophets, God began to promise to his people there would be a new relationship they would have with the Holy Spirit, new and different than what they'd had in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27, God speaks through Ezekiel to the exiles who have been scattered or in captivity in Babylon, and he talks to them this way, I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and clean from all your idols, and I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put, listen to the words, within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit, here it is again, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules." within you. 
One chapter later in Ezekiel 37, the Spirit of God picks Ezekiel up and transports him in a vision into, the, into a valley of the bones. You've maybe heard of this. This is like the elephant graveyard, so to speak. And the whole floor of the valley is littered with the bones of God's people, those who have not survived the, the, uh, uh, the conquering and the exile. And they're all over the ground, and it says they are bleached white, and there's no sign of life at all in these. And God takes Ezekiel, and he walks him through this. You can imagine what that was like. And then he asks Ezekiel a question. He said, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, oh, Lord, only you know. He says, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy over these bones. And I'm going to cause these bones to come together, and I will put sinews on them, and I will put flesh upon them, and I will surround them with skin, and I will put breath in them, and they shall live again. So Ezekiel does. He goes over, and he begins to prophesy over the bones. And he says, all of a sudden, there was a rattling sound. As bone came to bone, came to its own bone, the text says, as bone came to bone, and as human bodies were formed in skeletons, and then God put sinews upon them, binding them together, and flesh, and muscle, and then he surrounds them with skin. But the text says, but there's no breath left in them. There's nothing, nothing in them. So God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to the four winds, to the breath. And by the way, the word breath in Hebrew, the word wind in Hebrew is ruach. It's also used to translate spirit. I will put breath within them. Prophesy to the four winds, Ezekiel. So Ezekiel begins prophesying, and the wind arises, and these yet unanimated human lives come to life, and they stand up, and Ezekiel says, an exceedingly great army. All the way back there, God's promising, you're going to have something different that will happen, and it will breathe new life into dead hearts, dead souls, dead people, who are not alive to God. Jesus promised this very same thing, by the way. In John 14, 16, Acts 1, 8, remember? Jesus promised his disciples, when I leave, I'm gonna send you a new comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you, and he will be in you, Jesus says. And he will empower your life in ways that you cannot even comprehend right now. This promised Holy Spirit has done this sealing to us. And just to be sure, so Paul knows there's no mistake about this, that you can't claim you did it to yourself, that you made yourself alive. He uses the idea of the passive voice here in the Greek, which is the idea that this has been done to you, you did not do it yourself. You did not participate in the activity of this. But not only does he do that, Paul then begins to unearth some of the mechanics of how we were saved. Do you notice that in here? He says, hey, you were sealed, look at verse 13, uh, the very first part, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, then you were sealed. All right, that word sealed is modified by these two other phrases. Having heard the word of truth, that's the objective side. At some point, you hear truth. But then there's this subjective side. And then having believed in that truth, you responded to it. It says, then you were sealed in the Holy Spirit. All of this happening together, simultaneously, and he notes that by using the same Greek verb tenses here, for sealed, for having heard, and for having believed. He wants us to understand they're all happening at the same time. It is a simultaneous event. It is how someone, when they give their heart and their life to Jesus, is changed forever. 
So let me see if I can unpack this just a little bit more for you. And I have a, an illustration that I like to use to do that. So I'm inviting Candace over here. Uh, Candace is going to come in. She is my Vanna White this morning. And... Um, So I have this little uh, thing I'm going to do. Candace, hi. How are you doing? Good to see you. You're right on time. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Would you guys give Candace a hand? She's a, she's a part of our middle school ministry. She's on staff with our middle school students, and she does a great job. And she rides her bike pretty good, too. So, so I want you to think about your life like a bicycle wheel, if you can. All right? And, uh, and I'll walk through it this way. When God designed human beings, when God first created human beings, he gave them very precise design specs that would allow them to operate at their optimum levels, seize all of their potential. And he designed them very specifically in a certain kind of way, and here's how he designed them. God designed human beings to be operated from the inside by his life, for him to be the very hub and the very center of life. And God connected our human spirit. So think of the spokes here as the human spirit, your spirit, my spirit. Our human spirit connected in this relationship with God. And then our soul, our mind, our emotions, and our will is the, uh, is the uh, rim here. And then, of course, where the rubber meets the road is where our lives and behavior and our actions meet life. All right? So God has designed us very specifically. Every human being on the planet is designed exactly this way. Nobody is different in this respect. And when God's at the center of life, that life functions really smoothly. It's efficient. It doesn't take a lot of effort. Right? It's just very smooth. This is what we call a trued wheel, all right? where everything is connected to the center, all of the facets of life, our human sexuality, our leisure time, our work, our relationships, everything around us in life is connected in our spirit. And I want you to understand this is a large space here because I believe that our spiritual, that the spiritual space around us is so much larger and expansive than you and I think of it. I think sometimes we tend to think of the human spirit as like this little tiny place where God lives inside of us. But I think it's massive and it's huge. It drives everything about us, this human spirit. And it's connected in this relationship with God, right? Sin has disordered us, though. Sin has disordered our lives. If you look at this wheel, you can see there's a lot of spokes missing here. See, like a magician. There's things that, that aren't here. Many of them are weak. So. so if you ride on this wheel, the outer forces of life, the external forces, will eventually twist it, distort it. It will crater. It will bend. This, this wheel doesn't work very well. It's a lot harder to ride this bike. You will have to use X amount of energy more. It will take you longer to get places, and you're going to be really frustrated. So here's the point. If you are here and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, this is the reason your life is not working well. It cannot work well without Jesus at the very center. Without God as the driving force of human life. I like the way that C.S. Lewis says it. He says it like this. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He is the fuel that our spirits were designed to burn. He is the food that our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. There is no other. Here's the beauty of the, the gospel of Jesus. When Jesus came, 
And in the work that he did, doing all the heavy lifting on our behalf, on the cross and in the resurrection, has created a new way of becoming connected with him again, where he takes up his rightful place in a person's life. And he begins connecting parts of their life, all these outer areas, back to him. And there's a massive restructuring that goes on inside of a human being when they find Jesus. He changes them. He changes their mind, their hearts, their hands, their feet, the way that they think, the way that they feel. Everything about them becomes different. It's not perfect, but this inside dimension, like Lance talked about a couple weeks, is perfect. Jesus has taken up his rightful place, and he's connected us. Now, not all these connections may be exactly where they should be. Some of them might be weaker than others. Some of them might be tighter than they should be. If you're a cyclist, you know that you have to go through the process of always kind of tweaking and tuning these, getting them where they should be so that that wheel will be what we call a true wheel. But make no mistake about it. Jesus has started this process in us, and he's working on us. We're not perfect yet, but we are in the process, and someday, someday, we will be made whole again, perfect and complete because of the work of Jesus. You don't need to do that. What's this mean to us? Here it is that God has locked us into this relationship. And the Holy Spirit keeps pumping Jesus' resurrected life into our minds, our emotions, our wills, changing us, transforming us, until where life meets the road and the rubber meets the road here, our behaviors and our actions become changed and transformed by the person of Jesus himself. And it's the Holy Spirit who's the active agent of this. But he's not just the active agent. He's even more than that, Paul says. Look at verse 14. He is also the guarantee of our inheritance. This is fascinating. It's a fascinating word in the Greek language, by the way. Araban. It means to to be a down payment. That the Holy Spirit sealing us is a down payment of something. You know what a down payment is. You can't afford to buy the whole thing yet. So you put a down payment on, it holds it for you, and someday you are making the promise, I will now pay that off at some point. But in classical Greek language, this word, and ladies, you'll like this, this word actually was used for the engagement ring. Now, you all know what an engagement ring means, right? When a man gives a woman an engagement ring, he is setting value on her. He's saying, you are ultimately valuable to me. And the bigger the stone, the more value, right, ladies? (laughs) Right? Yeah? Right. So, but the other thing that it means is when a man gives a woman a ring like that, he is promising something to her. He's saying, though our relationship is here, I am committed to this relationship over the long haul, and I will keep working at it and building on it and building on it and building on it until someday we consummate that relationship together in marriage. It is the promise of a future, but it's the down payment on the future that is the guarantee of that. And he's just wanting us to understand, you're locked into this, man. You're locked into this connection with Jesus. And he says, what's the future ahead of us? Well, he gives us that. He says, until we acquire possession of it, the inheritance, that is. But I I actually don't like that translation that the ESV gives us here. Literally in the Greek, it says this, looking toward the redemption of the possession, looking forward to the full redemption of the possession, our full and ultimate redemption by God as his very, very special person, his inheritance in us, his prized possession. 
So what does this ultimately mean to all of us here this morning? It means this. If you belong to Jesus here this morning, God is utterly, irrevocably, irretrievably, irreversibly committed to you. He is committed to the process that he has begun in you, and he will finish this process. He has set his seal to this in the person of the Holy Spirit. He has placed himself inside of us, and he will complete the work that he's doing in us in the future. In fact, God is more committed to this than you are. God is more committed to you becoming the fully formed, fully functioning, fully developed human being, man or woman, that he made you. And if you belong to him, here's the promise, I'm going to finish what I started. I am committed to you to the nth degree. Can I take you to my favorite passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8? If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. If not, just listen in, or you can grab the Bible in front of you if you want to. Um, I know Brian did this a couple weeks ago. He went to Romans 8. I thought he was going to steal my passage, but he didn't, so we're good. All right? But this is one of my all-time favorites, Romans 8, chapter Uh, excuse me, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Paul is writing about how God transforms human beings from the inside out and how he he works that process. And then he writes these things as he closes off that section of Scripture. He says, what should we say to these things, all these things he's been talking about? If God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, using the rhetorical question, the answer is nothing. Nothing can be against us. If God is for you, Everything else is powerless to be against you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he begins to explain how much God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge or an accusation against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is going to condemn us? By implication, not Jesus For Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, even now, interceding for us. And who shall ever separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul gives a long laundry list of things that could be against us. And he lists things that were actually very common in the ancient world when a city was under siege. If you lived in the ancient world and your city was under siege, it was the most brutal and terrifying experience ever. They would cut off everything from you, food, water, military assistance. Oftentimes, as the siege would go on, people would be forced to drink their own urine or to eat their own feces or to eat people who had died and were deceased in order to survive. It was your worst nightmare. Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then he looks at the psychological state of utter hopelessness this would give to to people. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We're just like sheep regarded to be slaughtered. But then Paul does a beautiful thing here. No, he says. In all of these things, even if we're inside of these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword... Even if all these things are happening, we are more than conquerors. And literally, he says this, we actually super conquer. Paul didn't have a word. The Greek language has no word for super conquering. So Paul made one up. It's a combination of two words. Huper, which is hyper, all right? And Nike, we get our word Nike from that, conquer. He said, all these things we super conquer, we hyper conquer. 
And then he drives the point home, man. It's just like a sledgehammer. Boom, 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 boom. For I have become convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And I think Paul just like, I can't cover all the bases. So he just like goes all-inclusive. Anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bam, mic drop, right? God is never, ever, ever going to give up on you. He is never going to bail on you. He's never going to get tired of you. He's never going to become disinterested. He's never going to say to himself, oh, she's done too much, man. She's wandered too far. Oh, he can't cut it. God is never, ever, ever going to do that. And there is nothing but nothing but nothing but nothing but nothing but nothing in this entire universe that can ever separate us from the love of Christ if we belong to Jesus. That is the gospel truth. And when that gets a hold of you, it changes you. It gives you a confidence because somehow you feel very safe in God's hands. You'll learn this about me, but um, in all of my correspondence, I sign it off with this little phrase, in his grip. There's a sense I have in my life that I'm always in God's hands, that he's always holding on to me. I got it from Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms, where the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my salvation come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you does not slumber. He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade upon your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, neither will the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. The Lord watches over your life. The Lord watches over your going out and your coming in, both now and forever. Seven times in the psalm, the psalmist writes about the one who keeps him, the one who watches over him. It's the exact same Hebrew word, Shema. God is the keeper. And there's a sense when you start feeling that, when you sense that, and it changes. When you have that kind of security, you ooze confidence. John Ortberg tells the story of being out in the Pacific Ocean surfing. And this one morning he happened to be out there, and there was nobody out there in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and so he was kind of out there by himself. He said, all except for one Goliath-sized guy on the beach doing Taekwondo. And uh, as he's sitting there in the ocean waiting for the next good wave to come along, he said, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, paddled this little waif of a boy. And he paddles up right next to John, and he begins chatting him up like they were old friends, you know, he's asking him stuff and introducing himself. And John said, I found out this little guy's name was Shane. And uh, he was out there in the ocean, and so we got to talking about things, and he would ask about my family, and, you know, I, I asked him a little bit about his life and those kind of things. And finally, uh, the kid said to John, he said, hey, how long have you been surfing? And John said, oh, just a couple of years. And John said, how long have you been surfing? And the kid said, oh, seven years. And he said, how old are you? He said, eight. <laughs> and, uh, and John said, can I ask you a question? He said, how did you get here today, Shane? How did you get here today? And Shane, uh, facing away from the beach, turned back around, and he waved to the glass-sized figure on the shore, and he said, hey, Dad. And the, the glass-sized person on the shore waved back and said, hi, son. And then John said, I realized, 
why Shane felt so confident and so comfortable in the vast Pacific Ocean as an eight-year-old boy. He had a Goliath-sized father. So do you. So do you. You have a magnificent God who is a magnificent dream for this world, that it will be a different place, the kingdom of God. And he's enacted a process. He's already established a process by which he's bringing that to come to pass. And he's positioning all of his people, all of us, that's what these blessings are about in chapter one, positioning all of his people to participate in the grand human project of making the world new again. And you play a role. You're part of that if you belong to him. Man, step into that. Step into that role. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come up front, and they're going to be here for you after the service. If there's something that God's speaking to you about, then we want you to encourage you to come. Let them pray for you. Talk with them about what's going on in your life. But I want to close this way if I can. I don't know what God might be doing in your life, but I believe this. Every time we meet here and every time we study a specific set of scriptures, they apply to every single one of us in some way, shape, or form. And I believe this, that God has been speaking to you, that the Holy Spirit has been prompting you in some way, shape, or form. And I want you just to sit and think, what's the most powerful idea that you're walking away with this morning? And maybe it is that you're here and you've lost confidence in God. And my great hope is that maybe by being here this morning, that has been restored for you a little. Or maybe you walked in here and you've been disconnected from God for a long time. You walked away from him a long time ago. You've never returned. But all of a sudden, you're sitting there thinking, I wonder if my life could be different. I wonder if I could be a different person. I wonder if Jesus could change me. And man, I want to tell you that he will. If you'll just bow your knee to him, if you'll open your life to him, if you'll give him everything about you, heart, mind, body, soul, if you give him your entire life and rest your full weight upon him, ah, he will come into your life and he will change you. And maybe you're here, and man, you've always felt like you were just in God's hands. You've always felt that he's, he's been holding on to you. And that's just been strengthened a little bit. I don't know what it will be, but whatever God is speaking to you about, we're just going to take a few moments to listen to God, and then I will close out here and we'll let you go. So would you stand as we pray together? And let me pray for you. It's a good thing to be in your presence. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for sealing us into this connected relationship with Jesus. Thank you for the work that you continue to do in helping us to see Jesus more clearly and to love him more. And Lord, right now, I just pray that you would give us a moment just to listen to you and to ask this question, what are you saying to every single one of us? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to see differently or think about differently? What would you like to impress upon our hearts and our spirits here? And what would you like us to take action on? Would you just speak to us now and let us, just let us know exactly what that is, Lord?
Lord, hear our thoughts. Direct us in your path and just very simply, Lord, help us to honor you by walking with you and to take action on the things that you put on us here today. You are a great God and in the end, all this glory goes to you. So we thank you for that. We give you ourselves simply today and ask you to do your perfect work in us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.